Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osband, here with my friend, Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachat Yavamot, daf Ayin Tet, page 79. We're really almost uh, two-thirds of the way done with Masachat Yavamot, which is hard to believe. Um, so we have a continuation today of the episode or story with David HaMelech and the Givonim. Um, and I just want to point out, you know, it's it's actually, it's it's rather long, the discussion that takes place here. And part of what it gets into is this episode with the sons of Shaul, um, that they were, their bodies were basically left out. Seven of them were killed and their bodies were not buried right away. They were, they were left out on purpose. And the Gemara correctly asked, this Pasuk here um, from, uh, uh, from Devarim, chapter 21, verse, uh, verse 23, uh, which is, nivlato al right? You can't leave a body uh, overnight. And that's actually what we try to practice. We know that Jewish burial tries to take place as quickly as possible. In fact, in Israel, it's not uncommon to have a funeral even in the middle of the night because we just try to bury somebody as quickly as we can. And so the question is, allowed that these bodies of Shaul's children were allowed, you know, could be uh, out. And the Gemara gives a very interesting answer. I'm a Rabbi Yochanan Mishun Rabbi Shimon ben Yehot Sadak. So Rabbi Yochanan says in the name of Rabbi Shimon ben Yehot Sadak, Mutav Shetakher Otachad Minatarav Yit Kadesh Shem Shemayim Bifarhez. It's preferable to uproot one letter of the Torah if you're going to do a Kiddush Hashem. So in other words, what's going to be uprooted here is about burying a body and not leaving it overnight. Because once they saw, when people would see these hanging corpses of the of Shaul's children, right? They would say, what, what is this? What happened to these people who were basically killed? They would be told that they were princes. And then the person passing by would say, what did they do? Okay. They put their hands or they laid their hands on uh, on Gerim Gerim, which literally means an unaccepted, um, uh, an unaccepted converts. OK. And so the idea is, is that, you know, so what we're talking about is specifically the Nitinim or the Givonim. They were unaccepted converts because other, unlike other Gerim who, be, who became sort of full parts of the nation, right, the Nitinim were not actually uh, allowed to marry, but the idea is is that they pashtu yedeim. It's that they they didn't treat them nicely. They 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 put their hands on them. So the person who sees this and gets its answer is going to say, "You have no nation that is worthy to cleave to like this." If princes are punished for a sin like this, right? How much more so are common people? And if they're punished for, for not treating unaccepted converts, in other words, these weren't like regular converts, which value, but that we're saying even the category of converts who it's questionable if we really accept their conversion, if they didn't treat them nicely. Yisrael How much even more so would they be punished, you know, against a convert who was fully, who should have been fully accepted? al Yisrael converts were added to uh, were added to the nation of Israel. So it's interesting. Also, 
that Rabbi Yochanan uh, teaches, first it starts off as sort of like a, a possibility. Like, in other words, oh, this happened so that when people would pass by and see the princess, they would learn this lesson. But then it turns into like a reality, like, oh, this actually happened. And what, and then we have this, uh, you know, uh, all these people who, um, who basically, who uh, we have this 150,000 people who converted. Shinamar. Um, and now this is something that takes place in Malachim Aleph in, in chapter five, right? King Shlomo Amalek had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who hewed in, uh, who hewed in the mountains. So in other words, that these extra people were brought in by Shlomo. I, I suggest that everybody actually try to open up a Tanakh and look at that pair. The Dimel Yisrael have So they, so the Gemara asks, okay, the story about Shlomo, maybe these were actually Jews and they weren't converts. The Gemara answers, that Shlomo didn't make any Jews actually have to do, they weren't servants. So this type of work of carrying the burdens and hewing in the mountains is not, that's a little bit like servant work. So those had to be uh, converts. The Gemara goes on to say, but maybe they were just hired workers. They didn't actually convert. So the Gemara says, all right, so they're like, you're right. Let's, so we'll give you a different source. So now they quote a pasuk here from Debra Hayam and Bet in the second chapter, where it says explicitly converts, and he found that there was 150,000 of them, and he made 70,000 of them the carriers and 80,000 of them uh, the hewers. So, uh, you know, very, very interesting story. It's a total, um, it's a total tangent here, but it relates back to also the issue with the Nitinim beforehand, right? Because what what's going to get discussed is, is that the reason why the way that sort of like David Hamel was able to tell that the Gibonim were not really part of the Jewish people is because they didn't display the characteristics of Jewish people, one of which is Rachamim. And so this kind of also has that element where it's talking about how, you know, the sons of Shaul, they didn't behave with Rachamim. doesn't say this explicitly, but I think this is how all of this is connected in a way, right? They treated these converts poorly. But what's puzzling to me about this stuff, and I still can't figure this out, is that you're talking about this category of sort of like unaccepted converts. But again, at the end, we're saying like they needed to be treated nicely and they should have been treated better. But yet at the same time, we accept David HaMelech's decree that they cannot enter the Kahal. And I don't totally get this. Like, it doesn't completely make sense. Because on the one hand, you're saying we should have been nice to them. But on the other hand, it's saying like, but we still accept that they weren't really allowed to be part of the Jewish people. And last, just pay attention to that there's a discussion right before the Mishnah that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi comes and he tries to say, maybe we should undo that decree. Maybe we should say that they actually could be. So first of all, that's fascinating that there were even Givonim around anymore. Um, but I think the reason for that is there's something about this decree that actually doesn't sit well with Chazal. And I think that's why they take this whole detour because the idea that like, you're going to, it created a caste system. And I don't think Chazal likes that. That's not really a Jewish vet. So I think that's why the story is here as a detour to be like, yes, David HaMelech made this decree. Yes, he said they weren't really part of the Jewish people. 
but look what happened to Shaul's children. Like, that's actually not how we really are supposed to treat anybody, even somebody who maybe is, you know, of this unaccepted co convert category. And then that's even furthered by the fact that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi comes along at the end and says, you know, maybe we should see if we could actually undo this. Um, so I think we're seeing an ambivalence here about Chazal, about this whole episode, and what they're attributing to this Gezerah of, of David HaMelech. Um, so I think that you're probably right in terms of Chazal sensitivity here. I think there's also something to be said for, you know, even when the Halacha sets people up in, let's say, a class system or at odds with each other, there's still something to be said for, you know, treating each other well or being nice to each other, even if the even if there are still constraints on that relationship, let's say. Um, I, I feel like, of course, that goes without saying. And of course, everybody nowadays thinks that everybody should treat everybody nicely. But I'm not sure that it was such a given as a value back then either. Like, you know, in terms of once you have those divisions in society, um, why would you treat everybody nicely if you're no longer going to have the same so i think that's partially what they're saying they don't like this division they understand this division could be very dangerous so they tell this story to be like you have to treat everybody nicely even if they're not accepted what's also interesting about that story Anne, is they don't say what the sons did like it's not like they they don't say like they stole from them they listen they just it's this vague like pashtu yadam <laughs> like you don't know right. what it actually is, which I also find to be very interesting. I was also just interested that we were continuing with the David theme, right? How many Dapim now? Have we been talking about David Hamelech? I think it's up to three already. Yeah, it's a good amount. Um, I'm going to jump to the Mishnah now on Ahmed Bet, which brings us back to our other recent theme, which is um, men whose genitalia is not functioning to father children. I'm a Rabbi Oshua. And specifically, this is the genitalia. Let's note that, right? Your Dana, you did us the favor of going through all of those details. Um, yeah, we're not the rest of the DAP. We're again going to get into like you know fifty different ways to. <laughs> I'm going to keep my mouth shut now. Okay, but my point, but we're not talking about nowadays. We measure fertility in in many other different ways as well, including things like sperm count, and that's not relevant here, right? Meaning it's relevant in terms of. Somebody with crushed testicles is presumably not going to have a very well, high sperm. Well, the does it the way that it can do it, which is it's physically tied to the physical state of the organ that is the fertility organ. And so, like, it, it's right. Like, like, today, you could have somebody with many of these injuries who still could father children because of the technology that we have. So Exactly. You know, I'd love which to ask Chazal today, would some of these categories shift? Because, like, Okay, you could do Yibum and I mean, you haven't read the Mishnah yet. You could do Yibum with, you know, IVF. Like, there, it's a whole different world today. Again, we don't do Yibum today, but it's a whole different world today. But anyhow. Okay, go, so go let's go back to that. <laughs> right, jump, jumping back in time. I'm a Rabbi Hoshua. Shamati shasaris cholets v'choltzin li'ishto. V'saris lo cholets v'lochotzin li'ishto. V'eni l'farish. Now, also, I want to note that this Mishnah is, I would say, really different in flavor than many other Mishnah, not in terms of the content, but in terms of the fact that we have Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yoshua, who is a Tana, who is a learned Tana, who has opinions about things. And the Mishnah opens with him saying, I heard this halacha and it doesn't make sense to me. I don't have an answer. I don't have an explanation. This, this framing of the Mishnah 
is already very unusual. I, I, you know, offhand, I can't remember any Mishnah that would open in this way. So what the, what's the thing that he's wondering about? He had heard that uh, Saris, now Saris, again, we're going to translate as a eunuch, and in this level of, of question from Rabbi Yeshua, we're not going to define exactly what the issue is with this particular individual. The claim is, or his concern is, that the psak is that the eunuch performs alicha, uh, chalitza, excuse me, he he would do chalitza with his yavama, and his wife, if he would die, then his brothers would do chalitza with his wife, meaning that, it's good, again, cholitz v'cholitzin ishto that he's fully involved in chalitza, not yibum, but chalitza. Vasaris lo cholitz v'lochotin ishto, and yet he's got another statement that, um, that likewise he does not do chalitza with his yavama, and the brothers would not do chalitza for his wife in the event that he would die. The Eilu Farish, meaning he's got two contradictory statements, he's not sure what to do with them, which are the circumstances for which each apply. And it's an interesting thing, again, because uh, I, yeah, since when does a Tana in the Mishnah, meaning Rabbi Huda Nasi included this in the codification of the Mishnah, not in Tanaitic material in the Breitah, to say that this is part of the the basic halacha. So Rabbi Akiva comes to explain it, which is very helpful, right? I'm a Rabbi Akiva, Ania Faresh, I will come and explain it. Saris Adam, now, what does this mean? That Rabbi Kiva draws a distinction um, a, a Saris who is injured, um, where the injury takes place after the man, or and perhaps boy, was born. Meaning, so there was a time in his life where he, at least theoretically, could have fathered children. And because of that, even if it was just a short time, because of that, he does do chalitza, or and, and they do chalitza um, for his wife, right? Whereas somebody who is congenitally lacking in the ability to father children from a, in a physical way from the very beginning does not do chalitza. And likewise, if he were to get married and then he were to die, his brothers would not do chalitza with his uh, wife because he never had the potential to father children. Rabbi Lezer Omer, Loki, that we've got another opinion. Again, trying to answer Rabbi Yoshua. Rabbi Lezer has a different answer. It's the opposite. Loki ela saris chama cholitz v'cholitz lishto mipnei she yesh lo rifuah saris adam lo cholitz v'lochotin lishto mipnei she ain lo rifuah. Rabbi Lezer switches it. He says that the the well, I guess perhaps I I misspoke here. I said congenitally. I, that is what how we define this. That it's a natural that the the male baby was born with the inability to father children. But according to Rabbi Lezer, he says that the the boy baby who is born with the inability to father children can, in fact, be cured. Now, how we know that, again, not with modern technology, how he knows that he could be cured is not clear to me. Perhaps it will come up in the Gemara later on, um, and we're not there yet. But that would obviously make a very big difference in terms of if you can cure the congenital eunuch from his inability to father children, well, then, of course, you would, and then he would should be, you know, eligible for all the same terms of, of anybody who could father children as compared to the Sarisa Dam, the person who is injured, and therefore he, he can't be cured. If he could be cured, he would have been cured long ago before he ever gets the status of a Saris. It would just be an injury. 
העיד רבי יהושע בן פטירה על בן מוגוסת שהיה בירושלים סריס אדם. So now the, gemar, the Mishnah does what, I can't say it doesn't happen as often as what happens above here, but it's also not so common that we have a, what we'll call a Masa Shaya, Masa Shaya, a, an example of a real life case that appears in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yoshua ben Batera says that there was this guy named Ben Megusat, and he lived in Jerusalem, and he was a Saris Adam, meaning it's an injury call, caused at some point later in his life, meaning as compared to being born that way. And he did have Yibum. So that seems to that seems to be exactly what Rabbi Kiva said, right? That because the he had a certain time in his life when he could have fathered children, so he should do Yibum Khalitza, whatever. The Mishnah goes on to deal with other halachic issues, halachic details here. Here we're talking about a Saris, and it seems to be somebody who's um Asaris, because he does not have, in parallel to the Ilonit, where they are somehow underdeveloped sexually. Asaris, and the Saris will not do Chalitza or Yibub, and likewise an Ilonit, she does not do, she does not do Chalitza, and she does not um, end up with uh, in a Yibub situation. Um, right? She's not the one doing Yibub, she would be the one doing for whom Yibub is done to her. But if you have a Saris, again, this latter kind of Saris, the person who can't father children because he didn't achieve sexual puberty or, or some such status, right? Um, this kind of Saris who does Chalitza does not does not um, does not disqualify her from marrying a Kohen. Meaning in general, a Choletzet, somebody who has had Chalitza who has been participant in Chalitza, is not eligible to marry the Kahuna, into the Kahuna. But a Saris, this kind of underdeveloped Saris, who shouldn't be doing Yibum or Chalitza to begin with, as we've just seen in the Mishnah, the act of the Chalitza that is done uh, does not have any impact on her status. However, if he slept with her, meaning if he did the equivalent of Yibum, even though it's not really counting as Yibum, that would disqualify her from the Kahuna. Because, not because of the Yibum, but because that's considered um, translated as promiscuities. The idea here is that the, that the intercourse had no, um, no marital value. It's not a Yibum value. It ends up being just a matter of Znut, right? Like I don't have a better way of saying this, right? In these days, it would have been considered promiscuity. And the issue here is that, of course, somebody who is a zona, somebody who, I, more casually, we would say someone who sleeps around, um, is not eligible to marry into the kahuna. And likewise, an ailunit, um, where if she did get chalitza, if if they she was a participant in chalitza, she has not been disqualified for marrying into the kahuna, but if they slept with her, then again, likewise, she would then be um, um, disqualified for marrying the kahuna, because again, it would be considered licentiousness or promiscuity, whatever, and that uh, the zona is not permitted to marry into the kahuna. Um, 
Okay. We should just note that, of course, the Cerise, who's, you know... No, I I, I take that back. Uh, but I, I just want to say that um, this Mishnah, the first part of it being strange, fine. The second part giving us the example of the case to solve the original puzzlement of Rabbi Yeshua. But the third half of it, third, third of it, seems to be, you know, a basic uh, rendition of the halacha that maybe we would have wanted several dapim ago, you know, better <laughs> so we're talking about um, all of the, all of the ins and outs of whether a saris can marry to the kahuna, this case uh, context of all of the potential injuries that could happen to a person, um, you know, we like to every so often point out when the Mishnah seems to follow, the Mishnah that we wanted as an explainer seems to follow Gemara that had all the detail. This is one of those times. Yeah, it, it's a very, very bizarre Mishnah. And, uh, but also contains, like the construct itself, is, he's been learning with us long enough, we'll totally be able to see how it's different than other Mishnahs. And uh, again, you're right. It's the content that we needed beforehand that sort of framed the discussion. And so, I almost wonder in a way, like we had it the same way with all the things with the Kohen and who the Kohen could marry and not marry. And the Mishnah that we needed appeared later, right? The Mishnah that made sense, like, yes, of course, if he was already engaged to the widow, the Kohen Gudgel is going to be allowed to marry the widow. So I almost wonder if there's something purposeful going on here, you know, like they get through all the nut, the sort of difficult halakha, and then they get to the Mishnah that's like, okay, but this is how it's really going to work. Um, I think also that if we were not learning Dafyomi in general, you know, for any Masachet, somebody who's going to start doing Iyun in any Gemara, I would say learn the Mishnayot first, meaning all of the Mishnayot first, because before there were Amorayim, there were Tanayim, and all of that material is out there first. We don't do that on the Daf. We do it in order, and the Daf is constructed in a way that very often, you know, we've talked about this as well, right? The The literary construction of how the the Gemara that precedes a Mishnah on the page might really be, you know, connected in some kind of sophisticated way that Chazal put it together, but it's not always the most, um, the way we would do it for an organizing principle to inform beginners of what's going on. And I feel like all of us, when it comes to a new topic like this, are beginners, right? It's not about how long have you been learning Gemara. It's about the the structure of the, way we're coming at Tanaitic material after Amoraic material. Okay. If that, you know, I think that's, I, I think it's a, a feature of Dafyomi, perhaps more than a bug. We learn it in a different kind of way. Um, I just want to mention one thing uh, that I meant to mention before. If you go on Hadron, Shuli Mishkin has a great article sort of explaining this whole story about the Givonim that I would recommend that people uh, check out. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Bring us reviews and all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.